Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What's the most impressive thing you've built? Like built by, let's say built by hand. Oh, like from scratch? I just, I, I don't know. What take, is that even? Take the prompt where you want to go. Okay. All right. So, <laughs> thanks. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. Okay. Well, most recently, I'm not going to name the brand of Basketball Hoop because I don't want to disparage a company, but we got, or Olivia's, Brian's mom got Olivia a Basketball Hoop okay. for her birthday, but we had to build it. Okay. And it was the most insane adventure <laughs> It was terrible. The instructions were not clear. Oh. The pieces didn't f- fit together. It was like lar- it's one of those things that like largely exists on tension, which is our it's like sure. impossible to put together. Yeah. We there was one point where we got part of it, like two of the pipes stuck together. And then we had then we realized they were on the wrong way. Oh. So but then they wouldn't come apart to the point where we built a mechanism and strung it between my car and my dad's van. And we're trying to like winch it apart. And then when that didn't work, my dad was like, should we pull the cars in opposite directions? And I was like, well, as long as we're not going to get mad when our windows break, like when it snaps and our windows break, which didn't happen, but it didn't come apart either. Oh my God. We just ended up like drilling new holes in the position that the pipe that we had put the pipe because like we couldn't get it apart. It was days, weeks of trauma. There was so much fighting, so oh much like sweating gosh. and just like anger and <laughs> it was this it So was did you get terrible. it built? Is there a final product? It's built. It's built. And it's one of those ones that you can adjust the height. It's lovely. Oh sure. Yeah. But but I H H A T E it. This is like the the worst IKEA experience anyone has ever had. Oh times my 100. gosh! <laughs> yes, because of all of the tension, and you needed all these tools that they didn't say you needed. We had to go to the hardware store multiple times. It was terrible. I feel like there's a. Um, I feel like it's a figurative. It created figurative and literal tension for y'all. Oh my gosh. Yes. So much. <laughs> but now it is built, and now we will have wonderful afternoons of horse or whatever it is you do with basketball hoops. I like that you don't even know how to what no. you do with basketball. <laughs> Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon and I'm Vicky Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Vicky, are you are you mm-hmm. proud of your accomplishment at the end? <laughs> uh, no, not really. No. Maybe, maybe. I guess I should be. I guess Brian should be. Like, I feel like he was the he was the leader. I solved some key problems. Mm, I mean, while we were doing it, so I guess work. I'm proud of that. I like did some like very intricate taping and chalking. Yeah, uh, like a little chalk line to make sure we got the new holes that we had to drill. Right. In the exact right spot, so yeah, I'm proud of that. Okay, well, no, that's 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 good. Uh, but I not to uh, not to rain on your parade or achievements <laughs> immediately. I think immediately, just uh, that achievement or frankly anything I could probably come with, up with for myself mm-hmm. might be put to shame by what our guest was uh, building or at least part of building in college. In college, did he yeah. build like a computer? Oh, I mean, maybe, but think bigger. Oh, a car. I had to 
I was in a class where I was going to have be in charge of turning a car engine to like a, a like a plant based uh, like biodiesel oh. thing, and I was so stressed out I dropped the class. So did he build a car? <laughs> I feel like this says something about you uh, that we don't <laughs> need to dig into. Uh, no, uh, not a, not a car. Uh, think bigger. No, I don't have anything else. <laughs> well, okay. I guess I guess you don't have to. So we'll just we'll just get into the interview to figure out what's going on. Our interviewer was Jason Rodriguez. So I'm Nitin Shivadas. I'm a research scientist affiliated with the Catholic University of America, and I work at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So I broadly work in space weather. So, Mm. you know, I'm in the space weather lab. So one way to explain what space weather is, is, is basically outside our atmosphere, just outside at the edge of space, uh, there is still gas. We won't, we don't call it gas. They're really, really high temperature gas. So it's Mm. plasma Mm. and that plasma and the electric and magnetic fields that the plasma exists in can affect spacecrafts, can affect uh, human missions out into space. So we want to be able to know and predict and understand uh, the weather of space <laughs> around us. So that's that is the broad project that I'm involved in right now. I grew up in India in a state called Kerala in the southwest coast, and uh, my parents were both engineers. And when I was very young, my mom had this book called Cosmos by Carl Sagan. And uh, you know, I was maybe 10 years old and I picked it up and I started reading <laughs> and it really, really blew my mind. Like it just opened my mind and I was so fascinated by the universe. And, yeah, you know, many kids are fascinated by this space sky and the night sky. So I was also, but, you know, when you dig into the history of science and also just the depth of the universe, it, it, it captures your imagination. And that, that is probably what always pushed me into the direction of science. I, my undergraduate was in, in engineering, and that was double validation for me that I liked science more. <laughs> and, you know, I like thinking more than necessarily building something specific. Mm. What were you reading around age 10? Were you reading at age 10? Yeah, I was always a reader. I think probably like the Babysitter's Club. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for, uh, I have this, uh, what's funny is you mentioned that for me, it was probably, my version of that was probably Goosebumps, honestly. <gasps> yes, uh, Goosebumps. Yeah, Goosebumps were great. But I have this weird, I have this fairly vivid memory of my mom making, or let's let's say encouraging, love my mom, me to read Mutiny on the Bounty <laughs> when I was probably around that age. Like, I can picture, it was, and it was, it was like a, it was framed or geared towards children. It was this very, like, pretty cover. It was a little bit thicker, bigger print. I have no idea why, but yeah, I have this 
vivid memory of reading Mutiny on the Bounty when I was young, some age. That's amazing. I, I, yeah, I, I have no idea why. I couldn't honestly tell you. I know the the main themes of Mutiny on a Bounty. I get it. It's Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, I don't That's know. The gist of it. Yeah, I don't know why why that was a thing. But but honestly, it it doesn't really compare. I would say personally, that doesn't compare to reading Cosmos at no. age ten. Uh, and and if that wasn't impressive enough, this is this is actually where the what's the most impressive thing you've built prompt oh, comes okay. in. Okay, let's do it. So in undergraduate, I got involved in building a student satellite. So many universities around the world, and especially in India, uh, during the time that I was beginning to do my undergraduate, started working on university satellite development. And that involvement in that project really, like, you know, the, the satellite we were building was going to measure energetic particles in space. And that's what got me into plasma physics, particle physics, and then eventually space physics. So I was like, okay, I want to study this, you know. And my first PhD uh, area of study was auroral physics. Uh, It was on how the northern lights and the southern lights uh, Mm -hmm. were being formed and why they had the color they had and why did they move the way they moved. I had a particular project in mind and, you know, I was trying to work on that and mm. during my undergraduate, uh, sorry, PhD program. And you, suddenly, like, I found something in, da- in the data that was very strange. Mm. And uh, it was these really, really fake uh, auroral signatures that nobody else had noticed before. And we couldn't immediately find an explanation for it. So that changed my whole project. You know, I, I was like trying to figure out what is this thing? And it turned out, and I believe this to be the case that I've published a paper uh, trying to provide evidence for this, that, yeah, you know, the earth has radiation belts around it. These are really mm. high energy charged particles that surround the earth, like a donut shape. And this is dangerous for all like spacecrafts and manned missions that go through this. Uh, now, this faint auroral arc is produced by energetic particles at the boundary, the outer edge of this radiation belt. At least that's my finding. And that's really cool because you have to go through the radiation belts to know where the radiation belts are at a particular point. So it's not static. It's very dynamic. It, it grows and it shrinks. So you want to know where, you know, the extent of the radiation belt. But now if you can see it in Aurora, that means you can see it using cameras, visible like optical cameras. So you can image where the outer boundary of the radiation belt is and where it meets our atmosphere. So that, that becomes really interesting and cool. But, you know, that kind of changed my trajectory of my PhD yeah. program. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> no, I, I no. Yeah, in college, uh, he was helping to build a satellite. I was probably building towers of solo cups, uh, if we're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> houses of cards. How, literal houses of cards. Yeah. So I can't imagine like what else he's been working on. Yeah. So actually, 
Shifting away from the hard research side of things, Nathan is really interested in how we think about science, specifically productivity in science. And this kind of goes along with what Gael from last week was talking about, the potentially flawed idea of, of publish or perish. And so Nathan is interested in the idea of, quote, productivity being a good measure or measure of good science versus just getting a lot of papers out there. And he actually wrote an article about it. And the title was, Does the Way We Do Science Foster Discovery? That, that, that was the question. And the paper actually goes on to do a small toy model. There is a Monte Carlo model. And what it argues is that when we have a system that tries to maximize one parameter. So in, mm. in science, in academia, we try to maximize certain things like the number of citations. So, you know, the primary product of a scientist usually is a research paper that gets published in a journal. And that research paper will then be used by other scientists to do their research. And then when they do that, they give, you know, they, they cite your work in their paper. So that the number of counts of those citations, the number of papers you publish, these are what usually ma mark how good of a scientist you are. So when we attempt, to, when we have a system that maximizes this, the conclusion of my paper is that what you actually do is end up reducing the possibility of discovery instead of actually increasing it. And the reason for this is actually fairly simple. If you think about it, if you do a new research that nobody else is working on, why would they care about the paper that you publish? They, they, they wouldn't, uh, you know, it would be so far away from their fields or their areas or their interests that they're not going to cite your paper, right? But the thing is, you discover new things when you go astray, right? You have an infinite space. It's like trying to find a shoe, a lost shoe in a forest, right? You don't know where that shoe is. You've got to do some random walks. You, know, you have to explore the area. But if you're going to follow the other person who's just walked in front of you, you've reduced the, reduced the chances of finding the shoe. Yeah. So this happens in science is what I believe and I feel like I've observed and I think we can make a case for this. So, you know, things like this, which when I was young, I was very idealist might be the word, but, you know, like, oh, yeah, discovery. You know, you go out there and you can find things and be so beautiful and amazing and everybody around you would love it when you go and do something that nobody else has done. But the opposite is true. If you go and do something that nobody else is doing, you will not get funding. You will not get <laughs> research yeah. grants, you know, and uh, citations. And people might not even understand what you're talking about. So you have that kind of uh, pressure that goes in one direction. And people sure. with fewer papers and fewer citations who do like work that is different from others, we get fewer citations. So there will be, again, a hierarchy and the people with the most power will call the shots, will decide sure. what research uh, should be funded into the future and we, what research should not be funded and so on. 
I have a lot of thoughts on science as an institution coming from that institution, but perhaps I'll just let Nathan's very thoughtful words speak for themselves. You don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to get myself in trouble, no. Well, so we've highlighted all the great work Nathan has done, but it couldn't have just been smooth sailing, right, the entire time? When you think back on it, what has been one of the biggest obstacles for you to be where you are today? Yeah, I was going to say immigration. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) you know, this question is interesting because where you are, uh, you know, the, the, there's an assumption behind it. And, you know, the, the, and that's, that's what always interests me. Like, this is act clearly a ladder. It's hard to climb the ladder. And I'm somewhere up in the ladder, right? And what was difficult? Obviously, there's so many of the, you know, obviously climbing the ladder is difficult. You have to <laughs> have, you know, put this energy. You have to network with people. You have to have contacts. You know, you have to develop certain ability to persuade others, you know, have good certain kind of writing skills. Mm. Uh, yeah, so there's a mixture of these things you've got to do to climb this ladder. But I can tell you what are the things that actually affect, I think, the vast majority of people who don't make it to these positions and who we usually never get to hear from. And I think primarily that's money, your class position in this society. So, like, if you look at me, you know, I come from a small town in some part of India. And, you know, I could keep talk about, oh, you know, I come from this small town and I had no opportunities, blah, blah, blah. But it's not true, actually. If you inspect it closely, my parents were both engineers. And that would mean that in India, they would already become like the top 10% of, you know, the, the ec- economic population. You know, mm. and that would mean that I would have gotten a good opportunity to get education. And in India, uh, the public schools are very good, the top public schools, and they are very cheap. They, they definitely used to be very cheap. So you didn't need a lot of money to go to uh, like the top institutions in the country. So that's a big leg up, right? And, and now, and then once you get to such positions, then it becomes easier for you. The doors open more easily for you. But instead, if you were somebody who were from a poor family, whether in India or whether in the United States, most doors are closed for you. And then, you know, I think that's one of the biggest hurdles. But usually when we talk about these hurdles, people often focus on all the other things other than class. Uh, uh, You know, usually it's focused on identity, you know, your sexuality, your gender. They do play a role. But to me, the evidence is in the demographics. How many people do you think are in NASA from the bottom 50% of the country in terms of, you know, class? And I'm sure it's disproportionate. I don't have the number, but simply based on my peer group, I can tell most people, you know, the, the hardest thing, the thing that stops you is money. This, I feel like, is something we don't talk enough. Or or maybe I'll say I instead of we. But still, there are barriers in place for some that just don't exist for others. 
Oh, yeah, 100%. And we could talk forever on that. And on the opposite end, some are affected by science in different ways or to different extents than others. I think the biggest challenge in the way we do science is that who science serves? Mm. Who does science serve? I mean, this is the question I think we should all ask, especially when we claim to live in a democracy. So the I think what ends up happening because of the system that we talked about, the economic system, science ends up serving the people who own most of the resources. Mm. So when a company wants to market non-stick cookware, whether the chemicals from those non-stick cookware that deplete, you know, fall into the ocean cause cancer is not something that scientists are encouraged to or funded to delve into. And if when and if then they do, <laughs> there are forces that push them out of doing that research. But instead, they would do the research on uh, the nasty cookware and how to make it marketable, you know, and make profit. So then it not does not end up serving the people. It does not end up serving the demos. <laughs> so uh, I think that is our major problem. Uh, it's not, it does not serve the people. And how can we make it serve the people is the question that we should answer. And I say I don't want to answer that question simply because I think a lot of people need to individually seek an answer to this question. And they, and my only advice it is to politically educate yourself. Mm. Politics is not some, you know, some field that is separate from us. In fact, it affects all of us, everyone, including chickens and cows. <laughs> it affects every living being because politics is the science of governing ourselves. And so the, the, the only way is to educate ourselves politically. And that is the only way to make sure that all the things in our society, including science, and I think people have a good intuition to realize that the science is not serving the people. And that is why many people don't trust scientists mm. and science. So the way, I don't think our purpose should be to try to gain people's trust. Instead, it should be to try to change the system in order to make science serve the people. And the people will automatically respond to that. I think it's upside down to try to make people trust science when science is not serving the people. A big part of why we do this podcast is to humanize science and scientists and hopefully instill trust in science. And I I think that's a great point that science needs to serve the people if we're trying to get people to trust science. Yeah, we really didn't have to do much in this episode from a let's provide commentary on a, what our guest said perspective. No, <laughs> no, we didn't. But you know, that's, that's not a bad thing and an indication of a good, like a great guest. 
Ooh, so if we great get great guests, then you'll be out of a job. Oh, uh, no. I, you know, I, I will always find something to talk about. <laughs> sure. Uh, and and that's, that's literally for another day. And so with that, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Special thanks to Jason Rodriguez for conducting the interview and to NASA for sponsoring the series. This episode was produced by me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Karen Romano-Young. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please rate and review us and you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, I. this is just reminding me one of the... One of the most impressive things that I didn't quite realize how impressive it was at the time that my dad built. My dad is my dad mm-hmm. was an electrician. He basically kind of built our house, so that's very impressive. Yeah. But one thing I didn't appreciate was our basketball hoop. So we had mm-hmm. our driveway was just this long, kind of narrow driveway with a turnaround in it. So literally, it was just like a there's a it was like a half court basketball court kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because so you could back out and turn around, and he built a basketball hoop there, but it wasn't. It was all, everything except for the backboard and hoop, it was all wood. And it mm-hmm. set back probably like six feet off the edge of the driveway. And so oh. it was basically a giant, maybe eight by eight. And uh-huh. then it was all wooden. And it's like, that thing lasted for, I mean, my, it was my brother's. It was through my brother's and then through me. That thing was probably there for 30 years? I mean, he would oh, update wow. things here and there. But I just... what was one of the things we just yeah, had it growing up, it. but I never I never quite realized until I saw what kind of what you're talking about. Like the metal ones, yeah. the modular ones, even yeah. ones that people would nail or um, cement in the ground. They were all... It was just like... My dad was just like that. He's like, I have a better yeah. way of doing this. It's probably cheaper and easier and whatever else. But it was just yeah. cool. Like, I just never quite right. appreciated it until I was older how cool it was. It's like, good yeah. job, dad. <laughs> good job, dad. Good job, dad. Oh, man. Okay. So let's, um, let's keep doing this.